This is the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast with your hosts, Tom Shanklin and Tracy Doherty Shanklin, Managing Partners at CSU Investment Partners. If you're interested in labor and union benefit funds, well, you've landed in the right place. We are a go-to source for all things union benefit fund related, and we are going to bring you interviews with key decision makers and fund professionals that guide these plans. They'll share their insights, experience, unique perspectives, all of the latest developments and tips to unlock the mysteries of multi-employer benefit funds. Time is short, so let's get started. Please welcome Tom and Tracy. We are excited and honored about our guest today, Bob Alvarado. Bob is a friend, but more importantly, a respected labor leader. Bob has a distinguished background in labor and is currently the executive secretary treasurer of the Northern California Carpenters Regional Council. The Northern California Carpenters Regional Council represents 35,000 men and women in carpentry and related crafts. He is also the co-chair of the Corporate Board of Carpenters Administration Fund, which oversees almost $7 billion in assets. In 2006, he was appointed to the California Transportation Commission and is on the board of directors for the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. We are honored. My pleasure. Good morning. Hi, Bob. It's Tom. We always like to begin our interviews by having you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to a career path in labor and ultimately to your current position. Well, I was uh, I was 19 years old and going to school, working at a gas station. And all the folks that came in, um, I was going to be a computer programmer, and all those folks that came in were just never really happy. They didn't smile. They didn't fill up their tank. Uh, they didn't maintain their vehicles. And I just kept paying attention to that. All the construction guys that came in all had new vehicles. They always maintained them. They always filled them up. And they always just really happy. So I just kind of kept watching that. And then I thought, you know what? That's what I want to do for a living. I grew up on a ranch. I'm good working with my hands. have a pretty good work ethic. And so pretty much I broke my mother's heart uh, by not being the first uh, in our family to graduate from college. So I became a carpenter. It's the only real job I've ever had as an adult, and uh, it's probably the best decision I ever made. I entered the apprenticeship in uh, in July of 1972 and immediately uh, was picked up by two or three very, very good journeymen who became mentors. Um, one of the requirements was I had to attend the local union meeting with my journeyman, and that kind of got me involved in, uh, in the local union. Uh, they both pushed me. I had to start running work. It was I was in my third year of apprenticeship. So I've been running work, big work, a long time and started running work actually in my third year of apprenticeship. Worked my way up and was running a small development company when we started having problems in the residential sector. So my local union actually uh, came to me and, and asked me if I would go to work for them. And uh, obviously I turned them down. I was making pretty good money and and really enjoying what I was doing. And my boss at the time, the owner of the company, had been familiar with my career and and just told me, you know, they've been real good to you and it's time for you to give back. So why don't you go to work for them for a year? And if it doesn't work out, you come back and we'll keep building projects. Well, the good thing about working for Jack was we built 
projects from we buy a lot, get it through the planning process, and then build a project. So that was a part of construction that I wasn't familiar with that I really got to learn. So after a year, I found out that I really loved what I was doing. And I didn't go back to Jack, which uh, upset him a little bit. Uh, but in the long run, he was very uh, supportive and very proud of what I was doing. So I worked my way up through the union, started as an organizer, became a business agent, a senior business agent, the assistant to the executive secretary. And then in 2001, I ran for this position and became executive secretary treasurer. It's a job I still hold today. With your tenure in the labor movement, can you explain the importance of pension and health and welfare funds to union members? Well, you know, there's a couple of things that are unique to construction. One is the moment we set foot on a job, we're working ourselves out of a job. So it's a it's a temporary position at best, even when you hook up with a company for the long term, there'll be periods of, of no work. So there has to be a place, a central place that you can send and build wealth for retirement. I mean, not only is it a temporary, not so much temporary, not only is it a seasonal profession, but it's a profession that's pretty hard on your body. So if you didn't have, for instance, a health and welfare plan, those injuries, just, you know, cumulative injuries, not job site injuries, but cumulative injuries like shoulders and knees and backs could literally bankrupt you. And, you know, you get to that age where you want to get married and you want to have children. And without a health and welfare fund, you know, kids being kids, I broke bones. I, you know, just gotten boy trouble. And those required little trips to the doctors. And if nowadays, especially back when we were kids, it was a hardship, but now it would literally bankrupt you. And then as you work your way through your career and you get older and finally comes time for you to hang up your hat, there's something for you there to keep you going other than Social Security. I mean, hopefully you've bought a house and that's your your little bank. Uh, hopefully you've put money aside uh, during the good times. So you've got a little bit of cash, but a pension and an annuity really, I think, takes a lot of worry out of the equation about what I'm going to do when I could no longer work in the trade. So pension and health and welfare probably are two most important uh, functions as a union. And something that's uh, certainly increasingly needed and in demand these days with with some of the changes we've had. Bob, we've both been in the business a long time, and uh, I, I guess I'd be interested to hear how you think the role of the trustee has uh, has evolved over the years in terms of administering these plans. Well, I'll just use a, a personal example. You know, and, and it's a, it's the same that every trustee faces all across the country on a multi-employer fund, especially a construction fund. When uh, in 2001, total funds for the carpenters was about one and a half billion dollars, one point two billion dollars. And uh, we had three money managers, pretty much stocks, you know, the, the 60, 40 stocks and bonds thing and where there were no consultants. And as we we started getting bigger, if you will. I went to the then executive secretary and, and told him we need to look at a different way to invest and was kind of amazing. We're about to reach $2 billion. Do you realize how much money $2 billion is? And we're carpenters and millwrights and drywall. Um, we're contractors for those three crafts. And we need to find somebody that will guide us through 
this minefield as we grow. So we hired an investment consultant, and then I was allowed to sit down and with that investment consultant and design a plan pretty much to take us into the future, which included different asset classes other than stocks and bonds. And this was the big thing in in the day was when we got into high yield bonds, it was very controversial because Mr. Milken had just did his thing with the junk bonds and and that hangover was still there. But it's one of the best moves we ever made. That was the very first controversial asset class, if you will, that that we got into. And then you turn around and you look at today, we're almost $7 billion in assets, total funds. We have a, a consultant. We have 21 money managers and about, I don't know, 10 or 12 different asset classes. Everything from from foreign emerging markets to, again, the high yield bonds and, you know, small cap, mid cap, mid, large cap. I mean, they're just, it's so big now. And then you put the government regulations on top of that, pension protection, um, HIPAA, all the rest of the stuff that goes with trying to manage the funds. So the role of the trustee uh, that used to be a meeting, you know, once a quarter and everybody got together and ate lunch and and did a little bit of business now is truly a board meeting. It's advanced to the point where when you sign your name on the dotted line, pledging your personal assets, before it didn't mean anything, today it means everything. Oh, indeed. And I suppose with uh, the complexity of the markets and the new, actually new strategies and uh, asset classes being developed all the time, it's, it's certainly where you've got to turn to the professionals a lot more so than in the past. I was really lucky when I first started in that my boss had seen something. And so actually, when I first went to work for the council as, as Jim Green's assistant, I spent three weeks in San Francisco with our with our then largest money manager. And we started from the very beginning. This is a stock. This is a bond. This is a derivative. This is this. This is that. I, I just looked at him. I never took any financial classes in college. I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, you just need to pay attention. You don't need to know the asset class. You just need to know when the bastards are lying to you. And that's the best advice I ever got because you can, I've been to the Wharton School. I take continuing education, which we'll, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But you do have to know a little bit and, and you have to kind of, if nothing else, just read up on the buzzwords, if you will, so that you know when somebody's telling you the truth and somebody's just trying to mislead you. Right. Clearly, you have to be sophisticated to be a pension plan trustee today. Seeking the education and a broad understanding of investment solutions is great advice. You mentioned early mentors in your career. Since taking on a leadership role and you yourself becoming a mentor for others, what do you think is the most important skill or ability a labor leader needs to effectively manage? Well, above all, I think patience. You can never decide that you know it all. So you can never quit your ongoing education. The labor unions now are facing more and more legal challenges as well as management challenges. So it's one of those things that are pretty much ever evolving. We have the same run in the union. I run the union like a job site. You know, the organizers and uh, and new folks or apprentices, the business agents are your journeymen. 
uh, the managers are fit into the foreman superintendent role. And I just happen to be uh, the project manager. But just like anything else, if you see a new employee that shows some promise, then it's our job to make sure that we mentor them, that we get them the education that they can use later on, whether it's to become a manager or a trustee. We need to never stop challenging them. It's a different world. I mean, we never faced the legal challenges that we do now. Well, we personally, I inherited a pretty good deal here, Uh, but we're now faced with the challenges from the government on right to work and the right to picket, the right to do those things that we do to keep our organization strong are all under attack right now. And so that's a different uh, thing that you need to look for and look at. So as you grow your crew, you need to not stifle participation, if you will. Jim gave me the best, couple of the best pieces of advice I've ever got uh, before I took this job. We had a staff meeting and there were seven or eight conversations going on at one time. And when we were done, Jim and I were sitting in his office and he said, what did you notice about that meeting? And, you know, being young, it's, well, you know, we had seven or eight conversations going on at one time. All the people in the room were able to keep up with that. And we got a lot done in a, in a short period of time. Jim said, nope, you missed it. He goes, the, the best thing about that meeting was I was not the smartest guy in the room. But think about that. If you're the smartest guy in the room when you have a staff meeting, then you've done it wrong. You need to hire good people. You need to hire smart people and you need to let them go do their job. And then the second thing is you got to be humble. You know, you, you're not the smartest guy in the room by design. Um, you've got to let these folks do their job. And when it all comes down to it, as these, as these individuals start gaining more and more confidence, they're gaining more and more knowledge. Some people might take that as a challenge. So Jim, again, being the man that he was, said, not only do you hire people smarter than you, you really have to breed your own competition. This is an elected position. So sometimes people get intimidated about uh, an individual, especially a younger individual, gaining a little bit more popularity, gaining a little more insight in a certain part of the job. And they just chop their heads off. Well, it does the organization absolutely no good. And in the end, it's almost like an interbreeding and you get the same people with the same attitudes all running for office. And that doesn't allow your union to grow and prosper. You need new ideas. You need those young people coming up and providing the energy. I mean, I'm getting kind of long in the tooth here. And where I was out two and three and four nights a week, I just can't do it anymore. But I have people coming up behind me who can still do that two and three nights a week and make the organization look and become stronger than it's ever been before. I love what you said about supporting and lifting up people who are up and coming or showing that they can be up and comers. I think culture is such a catchphrase today, but that really epitomizes culture. But what I heard is that culture really starts at the top. Um, 
So uh, I applaud you for the organization you've been leading and the way in which you've bred that among your your staff and people. So are there any issues impacting your fund that investment managers should understand so that they can be more helpful in the management of your money or the fund's money? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, obviously diversification is is something that that you really have to look at. I mean, with the way it, what you try and do is you is you try and, and increase your hours at the same time that you're increasing your earnings and put put hay in the barn, if you will, for those down years. So you hope you never have hours down at the same time that you have your earnings down. And we had thought over the last, this, especially through this last growth cycle, that we would be that we would have both. But the the market is so volatile now that it's almost to the point where you can't, you can't depend on it. I mean, you have a guy in the chair right now who can who can send the markets tumbling with a tweet, and he has no he has no problem tweeting with somebody who take his phone away. We should be in this biggest earnings period that we've ever had. We should be, but we're not. I mean, hours are at record hours, um, and that's kind of really. I'm holding the fine truth. So, you know, when you look at a manager, you you not only they not only have to look at the upside, they got to also bring your plan for the downside. And you you never really thought about that when you hired a money manager before until you get somebody that that uh, over a quarter will dump 20 something percent. You know, and it's like, how do you set yourself up in a position to lose 20 something percent? So you have to look at both sides now. Those money managers come in with us. I want to see a plan for the upside and I want to see a plan for the downside too. That's great advice. Bob, you, you alluded to the, the sort of the political environment we all work in today. And I, I would go as far as to say there's never been a greater need for unions than, than today. And given all the inequities in the workplace and sort of the headwinds that, that they face, but just curious as to your perspective on what unions are doing or what they could do to become more relevant and influential in advocating worker rights and in, in gaining membership. It, there isn't a greater need. I think from the very beginning, we're almost in the same position that our forefathers and, and foremothers were 70, 80, 100 years ago. We're, we're pretty much rebuilding a labor movement. And the way you do that is you have to stay relevant. So those folks and those organizations that are so narrowly focused uh, will never succeed. You have to kind of open up your eyes. You have to take in the whole world. And sometimes you even represent folks uh, that aren't members of your union. Um, we have an organization, part of us, Smart Cities Prevail, uh, that's taken on the right to work challenge all across the country. So we've been involved in Michigan. We've been involved in St. Louis. We've been involved in New Mexico. And if you don't go out farther, it's pretty much protecting yourself. You know, if, if you're going to fight, fight on somebody else's turf and not at your front gate. So we're looking, we're taking a nationwide look at right to work. Um, and we're going into those states and we're putting money and, and men and resources to help them with that fight, to make sure that they stay, um, that they beat back that right to work challenge. But locally, you know, now you have to become um, involved in politics. You have to become involved in, in the planning and, and uh, approval process. 
you have to be most important, I think, is you need to be involved in the community. And if you can stay involved in those three things, I think you're going to you're going to prosper because everybody needs to see that uh, we started out. The union started out as a fraternal organization. We've become the business side of that fraternal organization, but we just can never forget that we are a fraternal organization. So you've got to hire people that understand. And it may not even be a carpenter. I have a research department who are all college graduates who utilize statistics and every other little computer nook and cranny to get in there and get us the information that we need. Um, we have a compliance department uh, who uses other tools. None, one of them is a carpenter, four of them aren't. But you got to go outside the organization sometimes uh, to get what you need to make this organization uh, successful. So it, there's all these different things now that I don't think were really contemplated when we were uh, when we were growing up, if you will, as a union, but are now pretty much required. So really, I think the community is probably the most important, and then the rest of those fall behind it. But if you're going to stay relevant, you, you've got to have public opinion on your side, and you just can't be. There's a time and a place to be a bully, and there's a time and a place to show the empathy and, and the involvement that we do. I have a closing question. Um, are pension funds and health and welfare funds a big conversation point when organizing new workers? They're big. I started out as an organizer. And, you know, when you're young, when I started when I was 19, a pension plan didn't mean a thing. And a health and welfare plan didn't mean a thing to me. I mean, you're young and invincible. So when I became an organizer, you know, I think I was 33 years old when I became an organizer. You find out pretty quick that those are the things that that's what the difference between us and them, uh, us and the bad guys was, was the health and welfare and the pension. And how do you explain that to this young, healthy individual? Well, you know where you do it? You do it in the kitchen and you make sure that the wife is there because most of the time, just like in my family, that's the brains of the outfit right there. And when you start talking about pension and health and welfare and what it can do for your family, especially if you have children, and what happens when you get old and you have a, a at least a steady source of income uh, other than Social Security, you start talking about those things. And probably 80% of the way into the conversation, the wife would come to the table and just sit. And I would invite her in and ask her, you know, go ahead and ask any question you want. And we would have a conversation. And if you're smart, you understand that you have to look forward to the future. And most men aren't that smart until we get hurt the first time or, or we get thrown out of work for a long, long time. But the people that run those households, a single father, uh, for example, will really understand um, the need for a pension and health and welfare. And I think that's what stands us apart. Like I said, we're a seasonal workforce. And there's a central place where all of your contributions go. And then when it's time to, to call it a day, you just walk in one door and take care of everything in one spot. That's important. So as someone who grew up around the labor movement, what I love that you touched on is that you were sitting in someone's kitchen when you're having that conversation. I think it speaks to something that maybe people outside of labor don't understand about labor is that it truly is a family or to, to use your words, a fraternal 
organization that supports each other in good times and bad. And I think it's uh, really cool that those conversations, those real conversations are happening in people's homes with the family in mind. In, in my organization, everybody starts as an organizer. Everybody, except the research and, uh, and compliance. Everybody else starts as an organizer. And you got to spend at least a couple of years doing those kitchen talks before you move on to the business agent, senior business agent, district manager, and senior staff. So that everybody has the same idea of, of where we came from and that we can never forget that the minute you stop going into those kitchens, you're, you're taking your first step to irrelevance. So important for people to understand about labor. Uh, Bob, I think that about wraps it up. Is there anything you'd like to say that maybe we haven't touched on today? Mm, I think other than, I guess we need to talk a little bit about relationships, you know, with politicians, with city planners. You know, I encourage the people that work for me to to develop those relationships. And, you know, you're, you're going to have a lot of acquaintances in the work that we do. It's important to develop friends. You know, not every every money manager is going to be a friend. Uh, not every consultant is going to be a friend. Not every contractor is going to be your friend. But you need to develop those relationships. And if you if you come away at the end of the day and and you've got more friends than acquaintances, you did it right. That's awesome. I totally agree. And I feel honored to call you a friend, Bob. So thank you so much for today. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, we really appreciate this. I think that there's uh, there there's a need, and when you talked about uh, becoming relevant, you know, we certainly are advocates of the social media, and uh, this is just one one additional platform to get out there and let people know what the union movement's all about and and how it helps people. So, we thank you for for helping us spread that message. You're welcome. Good to talk to you both. Yeah, thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast. We would love to hear from you. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, head over to www.sisuinvestmentpartners.com and let us know. Tom and Tracy, thank you for joining us. And we look forward to next time. For even more information and resources, head over now to www.sisuinvestmentpartners.com and get involved.